Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. You don't need to have a hundred-person company to develop that idea, is a quote from Larry Page, the American computer scientist, internet entrepreneur, and co-founder of Google. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest, like Larry, is a firm believer and well-known advocate of the role that small business plays in building economies, building nations, and changing people's lives. Our guest today is Kate Carnell, the Australian small business and family enterprise ombudsman. She previously held the position of CEO of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, which represents more than 300,000 businesses across Australia. She also served as CEO Beyond Blue, the Australian Food and Grocery Council, the Australian General Practice Network, and the National Association of Forest Industries. Kate also held the position of Chief Minister of the ACT from 1995 to 2000. A pharmacist by profession, Kate ran her own small business for 15 years, was the inaugural chair of the ACT branch of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, and the first female to become the National Vice President of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. In 2006, Kate was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia for her services to the community through contributions to economic development and support for the business sector, knowledge industries, the medical sector, and medical technology advances. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this powerful episode, Kate brings forth the necessary conversation. At a time when the world is living through COVID-19, in uncertainty and balancing ambiguity against opportunity, Kate puts forward the realities of the situation, reminding us of the more sombre statistics and the penalty for inaction, the sway of red tape and political correctness. We discuss how more than ever, the time has arrived to seize the opportunity as a nation, to cut the lip service and come together, embody the spirit of the entrepreneur and support the bedrock of the Australian and global economy, small and medium-sized businesses, as their success will determine our future. So sit back and enjoy the wake-up call. Kate, welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. If you don't mind, Kate, I'm going to take you back to the beginning when you started your career. I understand you studied a Bachelor of Pharmacy, then went on to become a practicing pharmacist, i.e. cut and thrust in the big world or small world of business. What made you do it? Well, I started a chef's apprenticeship when I because I really love to cook. Absolutely really love to cook. I still love to cook. 
So straight from year 12 in Queensland, I you know, was working in the local uh, restaurant stroke catering business, really loved it. So I thought I'd become a chef, and which I'd always wanted to do. So I started being the apprentice to a pastry chef. Ooh. And I tell you what, it messed up my social life. Yeah. Oh, sorry, but <laughs> it did. So, you know, starting at 3 a.m. and finishing at 9 a.m. and then coming back at 3 p.m. and working through, I loved it, but then I was accepted into medicine at University of Queensland. Okay. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I should do medicine. So I did medicine for a while, but then I was working at our local pharmacy and I just loved it. It had the health aspect, it had the business aspect, it had the people aspect. So I really, really, really loved it. So I swapped to pharmacy. I'd always planned to own my own businesses, but I managed some others to start with. So there you go. And did you come from a family which was, you know, in that way inclined as well? My father did accounting at night, as many people of his generation did, because many people studied at night after leaving school early. So he did that. And then he and his brother um, and brother-in-law, the year I was born, set up a um, a domestic building company. So they built houses. Yeah, right. Um, brother was, um, they were, brother and brother-in-law were both architect. Were, were, well, one was an architect, one was an engineer, dad was an accountant. So they were fine. Yep. And so I spent my whole life in the ebbs and flows of uh, of the building industry, which let's be fair, is really incredibly good mm. at uh, um, at having booms and busts. So we were either really in a, we, we were in a good spot, or we were eating Vegemite on toast because we always kept the staff. The staff were, were more important than the family. Yep. And I learned really early what small business was really about. All about that cash flow from the early learnings. Cash flow from the early learnings, absolutely. That uh, the things that go first, uh, all of the add-ons in your life, your holidays, the things that don't go, uh, your staff and your customer service. So, why did you make the big move to that that interesting city called Canberra to open up your <laughs> open up your business? Well, I was managing a pharmacy up in Queensland. You know, you fell in love. Look, the things you do for blokes, this is the problem. Anyway, my uh, my husband, well, he wasn't my husband then, but um, we'd been going out together for a while. He did a history honours degree at UQ. Um, he said he was really happy for me to support him for the rest of his life um, while he wrote esoteric stuff that no one would pay for. So he's a pretty smart so, bloke then. Yeah, sorry. He's a smart yeah, bloke a, then. Uh, so he said, so we said, well, I don't think that's such a good idea. Yep. So he accepted a job in the, a very good job in the public service. We came to Canberra for six months in the late seventies and guess where I am still in Canberra. So I love Canberra. It's a great city. My parents were devastated when I said I was going to Canberra. They said with all those public servants, Kate, you know, they're classic small business people, but there you are, but it's a lovely city. 25 years old, you opened up the first pharmacy. Is that right? That's right. Um, so I managed some others to get, you know, my, you know, to, 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 to work out how it was done properly. But I'd always wanted to do my own thing. I suppose I looked at other people's and thought, well, I reckon I could do this better or different. So I bought my first pharmacy when I was 25. My second one when I was 28. Wow. My third one when I was uh, 29 and my fourth one. So I had a few. Okay. Um, I also had my 
first child when I was uh, 29. And so that I always look at my, my first pharmacy as my firstborn. Um, my first child is my third born because I had another pharmacy in the middle. So, um, so I had littleies and I had businesses that, you know, that um, were at times pretty tough to run. Also an interest in politics? Um, initially, I'm always an interest in politics, but not dramatic. I wasn't a member of a, of a party, although my father always, always was. But I got involved in industry associations. So I was... Uh, and got involved in the pharmacy guild and the chamber, the local chamber of commerce, became president of the local pharmacy guild, the ACT pharmacy guild, and was on the board of the chamber. And sort of ended up involved in politics, or say small p politics, as a result of that. You know, trying to um, advocate for small business, really. And uh, from that, ended up being asked to stand for the ACT assembly. Initially, I said, why would I be so stupid? I've got four pharmacies and two reasonably small children. Um, But I was talked into it. And from there, you know, I stood for the assembly, was elected, came leader the next year, became chief minister the year after that, had two terms. And then I resigned and went into industry associations. So there you are. There's my whole career. And just on that, Kate, what what do you see as the sort of the big achievements as the chief minister? We balanced the budget. pretty important. Yep. So when I took over, um, the AC, I'm, a, I'm a liberal. Um, okay. The ACT doesn't elect libs very often, like almost never. So um, it was a an unusual. Um, so I won two elections as as chief minister, so I had two terms. And I think the, the biggest thing we did was, I suppose, we got to a point where there was more people employed in the private sector than in the public sector. Is that right? That we... We balanced the budget that hopefully we made the ACT a really good place to do business by cutting red tape. Uh, we rolled out broadband uh, at that, you know, that's 20 years ago so yeah. that, you know, the, that uh, the ACT could be ahead of the, the, the game in that space. And so I think I, I know I ran the ACT a bit like a small business the ACT is a multi-billion-dollar budget. It's a bit similar to Tassie, I suppose, in size. Yeah. But I do remember really clearly when I was elected, which was, a, I have to say, for me, a bit of a surprise, really. But the Treasury guys turned up and sat down and said, "Well, Kate, there's a budget black hole." Apparently, that always happens. Okay. And they said, "And so what we're going to do is a two percent across the board cut. That's what we think you should do." And I said, "Is everyone equally inefficient?" And they looked at me like um, <laughs> I'd lost the plot. And I said, I think we should zero base and see, you know, where we're getting productivity, you know, where's efficient, where's not, and do it that way. Yep. And you, I still remember the, their eyes rolling to say, we've got a live one here. But that's what we did. We implemented accrual accounting, um, outputs-based budgeting, a range of things that are pretty normal now, but no one else was doing them then. Look, just on a, on, a, on a sort of sidestep here, observations in, in politics in regards to not the pedigree of having many people from a, a corporate or a business background, does that does that concern you? I, it's, it concerns me dramatically. Yeah. And, you know, it's got worse yeah. uh, over the years that I've been involved in politics, you know, either directly or indirectly. Now so many politicians have um, either worked in the union movement or yeah. been staffers or worked 
um, in industry associations as they're, you know, to start with in their transition to be pre-selected and go into politics. So they don't know what it's like to have your house writing on it. They don't get cash flow because you get paid every fortnight, don't you? That's right. Doesn't everyone? Well, no, not exactly. And so I think the the dilemma of having lots of people in politics that have got law degrees, I mean, they've got university qualifications, but a lot of them haven't actually worked out in the what I'll call the real world. Yep. They've just had this transition into a political um, environment. And I think that's really bad. I think we should almost require people yeah. to have worked in real jobs prior to politics. It's coming a very vicious circle, isn't it? We're not seeing a lot of challenge in, in that regard. You know, you look at the candidates being put up and they go straight to your point. You know, they've done a couple of years on a, on a law firm. They've gone and joined yeah. another small party affiliate in some form, and guess what? They're going to get sponsored, and in they go. And what are they? Yeah, how they are go, they and, I go and staff for a, you know for somebody for a while, and that's yep. really good. And then they, I mean, it, I, I understand it, yep. except I think it's really, really counterproductive for all sides of politics. Yes, yeah, agreed. You know, we really want people who have actually worked not just for two years in a law firm or, you know, being a teacher for two years prior to going and being a staffer. I think we want people who really understand what it's like. You obviously did really well in Canberra and you make the move out of polit- out of politics. Can you talk us where, where your heart's taken you? Um, look, for me, um, I'm, I'm not really good at having a career plan. I didn't ever plan to be a politician. So after that, it was a bit similar. But I was approached to be CEO of the National Association of Forest Industries. Mm-hmm. And that might seem really strange, but my grandfather was a forester. In fact, he headed up the he headed up forestry in Queensland. And I spent a lot of time as a kid walking around national parks with grandpa, who was passionate about um, about production forests, about wood, about the environment. In fact, he was a Rhodes Scholar and so a bright boy. But I always thought that the forest industries were incredibly badly understood. You know, that wood was is actually the most sustainable building product. We love it, but somehow we've got this thing about cutting down trees, which we should in national parks. But I thought, well, what a challenge, you know, this is an industry that employs a lot of people that is really important to rural and regional Australia and is under attack from a range of people who, in my view, didn't know what they were talking about. So I thought that was a challenge. So I got involved in an industry association way outside my my background, except for the fact that I had a grandfather there. And so then spent um, a number of usually three to four year periods running industry associations because I'm a good change agent. I'm really good at, you know, changing organisations, direct getting the budgets right and hopefully getting strategic plans on board. Um, and I'm not really good at steady as she goes, which is really bad. So I had a tendency to go to a new association and have every four years since then. And in those four years, you've had what uh, experience in being the small business oddmansman? You've also been the CEO of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, uh, yeah. and then, and now you're in a, a new role. But all of them seem to come with one theme: all about small businesses. Would that be fair That's to right. say? That's right. I, I was CEO of um, Beyond Blue for a while, which yeah. was a bit different. But that was because I was on the board of Beyond Blue. Jeff Jeff Kennett and I had worked together when I was Chief Minister and he was Premier. So, and we both 
well, my background was health. I was passionate about mental health. I had anorexia nervosis as a, as a teenager. Okay. So I've got personal experience. I, you know, was a sick young girl for a number of years with a mental health stroke eating disorder. So was always quite passionate about, you know, trying to help others in that space. I'm one of the lucky ones that actually recovered. So um, I'd been on the board of Beyond Blue. We lost a CEO. Jeff said, you can do this. You run associations. And I said, but I don't live in Melbourne, Jeff. He said, but everyone wants to live in Melbourne. (laughs) And I said, no, Jeff. But Jeff Kennedy is very hard to say no to. So I went and, uh, and went from being deputy chair to being CEO for a couple of years until we found just the right person to take over. And a lady called Georgie Harmon took over from me. She's been CEO ever since, and she's fantastic. Did, were you surprised when you took on the role, Kate, what you found out in regards to statistics in this country? Yes. Um, I thought, you know, I'd been on the board of Beyond Blue for a long time. I'd been in health for a long time. But when you really see, you know, the, see what the statistics tell us about mental health and suicide yeah. as well, um, you know, double the number of people die as a result of suicide as die on our roads. We lose about eight Australians a day. Is that right? Uh, to suicide, and we always think about them being, you know, young people. But the, mo- the most, the average age for people dying as a result of suicide are men, aged uh, forty to fifty-five. Right smack dab, might even be thirty-five to fifty-five. But anyway, in that space, they're men right in this in the middle of their working careers, often with families whole range of reasons, but one in four of us, you know, so 25% of us will experience a mental, a serious mental health issue, not just being a bit stressed at some stage during our lives. Today in Australia, two million of us have clinical anxiety and a million clinical depression. And that's without COVID-19. And that's going to make it worse. But, but, you know, it, it shows you this is a very real issue and one that in business, we don't talk about enough. I often, when I'm speaking about this to, biz, to, to bigger business, yeah. say, well, look, you're sitting at a table of 10, you guys. One person at that table right now will have depression and one will more than, well, one will have anxiety and one will more than likely have depression. You know, clinical scenarios. Think about your workplace. How many staff have you got? Well, you know, use those statistics. So it's not about someone else. It's about your workplace and gee whiz, mental health issues not don't just affect the person and their family, they really affect productivity, workplaces, all sorts of things. So I'm really passionate about it, you know, from a personal perspective, but more broadly from um, a community business perspective and a productivity perspective. The one thing you can't do when you've got a mental health issue is concentrate and you tend to be really bad at working in teams and collaboration is something that really isn't what you want to do. And if you think about what we're expecting in most of our businesses these days, we yeah. want, you know, teamwork, capacity to, to deliver on time, collaboration, all the things that somebody with depression or anxiety will absolutely struggle to deliver on. So what do you think? How do we, um, we spend enough time and energy in actually addressing it or is it, or is it all lip service? Um, I think a lot of it's lip service. Do you really? I think we're doing so much better than we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So things have really improved. 
and entities like Black Dog, um, Beyond Blue and others have been really out there pushing this. We've had some great senior leaders of of corporations. um, And and political leaders as well. Sorry? And political leaders as well come out. Yeah, saying we've got to do something about that. But the people who make the most difference are the people who say, hey, you know, this isn't about everybody else. I experienced this or my family. I've got a son, a daughter, a wife, a, you know, a husband or whatever who's been here. And we all do, you know, you know, just the, the statistics tell us. But often we don't admit that about our personal experience. And fascinatingly, once you do that, um, CEOs of companies always tell me all of a sudden people come out. Yeah. People, you know, say, I'm really struggling. I need a hand. Um, and if you get them early, help them early, then the capacity to um, to end up with not workers' compensation claims, which we all hate, yes. and not with yeah. the productivity issues that I yeah. spoke about earlier. Yep. And Kate, where do, just where do we as a nation sit compared to other advanced nations in the world? Look, we're doing. I mean, we're doing pretty well. I think we talk about it more than lots of places do. But I tell you what, we still don't translate, you know, talk into actually changing the way we operate. I often go through a list of the sort of things that will in that will make mental health in the workplace worse, like, you know, working too many hours, not knowing when you go to work in the morning when you're going to be able to come home um, that night, being under-resourced, um, bad communications in the workforce, you know, bad management style, bullying. And you go through the list and people go, you can see senior execs going, oh, sounds like our place. Yeah. And there's certain things you you need to do. You need to have a mental health plan. You need to have a scenario that, that isn't just a plan, is somewhere that, that really treats physical health issues and mental health issues the same, really does. You know, that you you respond exactly the same way to someone who has a mental health problem as somebody who comes to you and say, look, I've just been diagnosed with um, diabetes and I'm going to have to give myself an injection, you know, a couple of times a day. And you'd say, fine, great, you know, what do you need? You know, that's what you do. We've got to treat mental health exactly the same way. I'm sure we're going to cover this off a little bit more too, Katie, a bit further in this conversation when we talk through uh, COVID-19. Kate, what's your current role? As um, the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman, Mm -hmm. which I agree is the world's worst name, because even when you try to make it into an acronym, it's a spiffio. (laughs) Now, you remember I'm a pharmacist. I reckon you should be able to treat that because it sounds like something bad. Sounds like it spreads Um, pretty rapidly, Kate. Yeah, that's it. But anyway, it was uh, one of those names that came out of a committee meeting somewhere at one stage. But look, the role is um, the role is statutory. That means there's a piece of legislation that sets up my office. Mm-hmm. I have a budget line, and the the legislation was passed when Bruce Bilson was small business minister because he really believed that there needed to be an independent Commonwealth entity like me um, who could advocate on behalf of small businesses. That's defined as under 100 employees in my act, which is 99% of businesses in Australia, um, could do inquiries into things that mattered for small businesses, but also had an ombudsman role. So we also look after small businesses that have problems with big businesses or governments, contract, contractual issues, payment time issues, you know, um, franchising issues, 
those sort of things. So it's unique because I'm statutory, so I don't report to the to the government of the day. They I'm appointed and then I have an act that I've got to comply with. So I'm not allowed to go mad or broke and I've got to turn up at work and deliver on what my act says. But the government of the day, you know, doesn't direct the office, can ask us to do inquiries, but um, but that's it really. Kate, we hear a lot about large corporations around the world, but the majority of countries, maximum employment comes from small business. Do you think we put enough emphasis on the day-to-day lives of those running those small business? Not even nearly enough. You know, I made the point that 99% of Australian businesses yeah. have less than 100 employees, but let's go right down from that. The ATO definition of small business is under 10 million turnover. Okay. 99% of businesses are under $10 million turnover. 97% of businesses have less than 20 employees. And of those, yeah. um, 75% have less than five employees. So, you know, we've got 62%, I think, of the workforce are, are sole proprietors. Yeah. So, you know, we, we forget that small businesses are really small. And so we just go into the under 20 employee space. Mm-hmm. People in that space, they don't have in-house lawyers in-house accountants, they don't have somebody that does the wages. It might be might be a bookkeeper that comes in once a week to do it, but doesn't have an HR section in the company. Yep. That's not what they look like. They're running their companies, you know, head down, bum up. That's what they're doing. They're good at what they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in business, but they're not good at understanding fair work acts with 960 sections and quarter of a million words And that's even before you get to the 121 different awards we've got in Australia. Correct. And just for, you know, that uh, trivia question, Australia is the only country in the world, apart from to a lesser extent New Zealand, who has awards. No one else has this. So, you know, everyone else has things like Fair Work Acts with safety nets and other things, but the extra layer of awards and awards that in themselves will have 20,000 plus words, multiple pay points, um, multiple different approaches to breaks, you know, I could go on forever. This is so complex that, as we know, many big businesses have ended up on the wrong side of compliance, including recently the ABC. Yeah. I'm sure they didn't mean to pay their uh, their casual staff wrongly, but they did, you know, to multi-million dollar levels. How are we expecting those little businesses with less than 20 employees to comply? And then there's the Tax Act, and then there's the OHS scenario difference in different states. What we've done is we've ended up with an incredibly red tape complex system in Australia that might be okay if you're BHP yeah. with lots of people to do it, but really doesn't work for little guys who have to do it themselves. Where's the debate then? Well, the debate isn't very solid and um, it's probably one of my roles is to try to bash people up a lot on this on this stuff. But it's it's really interesting. In the in the industrial relations space for a long time, organization, you know, me, the Chambers of Commerce, the the Council of Small Business have been saying the system is too complex. We cannot expect businesses to be able to comply with this. Oh, cost your fortune. Um, fully push back from the union saying we can't change anything. You know, every one of those terms and conditions have been hard 
you know, hard won and hard fought and all the rest of it. I get that. But if you want to look at the ultimate in bad public policy, it's um, a significant part of who we are as Australians. You know, we'd want safety nets. We want yep. to pay people properly. That is so complex that 97% of businesses with under 20 employees have got Buckley's of being able to comply properly. It's just bad public policy. So what we're trying to convince government as part of the COVID roadmap, I suppose, is let's once and for all try to have policy that is aimed at the 97% of businesses, you know, that are at the engine room, not policies that somehow we're trying to make them work for BHP and the corner store because they just don't. So a small business award that is clear, simple, you know, one pay point, similar approaches to breaks. Um, we've got an underpinning safety net in, in, in Australia. Let's try to make it simple so people get paid properly and small businesses don't um, can get it right and it doesn't take hours and hours and hours of their time when they should be focusing on their customers. So, okay, so, this, so out of all this bad news at the moment with COVID, there's one bit of light here, which is to shine really hard on the red tape, the bureaucracy around small business, because we want this to happen. We are as frustrated we as you are. We are sick to death of not being represented in the right light. So keep going, Kate, keep bashing. But on this point, Kate, what's the stats telling you out there for the people in small business at the moment? How many are going off the cliff as we speak? You know, um, during the global financial crisis between 08, 09, and I think 12, 13, during those years, Australia lost 193,000 small businesses, and that was minor, you know, really minor in comparison to this. I mean, you know, in terms of the impact upon small business, the global financial crisis was bad, there's no doubt, but in comparison to what small businesses are going through now, it was minor. So there is a lot of small businesses out there. 2.3 million trading small businesses in Australia employing more than half the workforce, delivering more than half of our GDP. So it really, really matters that, you know, what's happening here. And remember, for a lot of those businesses, we, you know, governments and others, for right reasons, have told them they have to close. If you happen to be in international tourism or even in local tourism, if you're in events management, if you're um, in hospitality, if if you've got a hotel, you're in accommodation. If you just think right now, just today, think about those restaurants and cafes in Victoria who were all ready to open, who'd restocked their storeroom, they'd done the prep, they were able to go to 50 customers. That was enough, they thought, to get their business back on track and overnight they're closed again. You know, how challenging is all of this? And the dilemma is there is a very finite period of time that businesses can survive through this. Even with JobKeeper, which is keeping them afloat, I'd have to say it's fantastic. Yes, agreed. They're pushing out their bank payments. They're pushing out, you know, they're doing some deferred rent. uh, They're pushing out their ATO payments, but they're going to have to pay all those at some point in the future. So we've really got to understand that right now, there's a chunk of businesses who won't get through this 
Um, and they certainly won't get through it if we, as consumers in Australia, don't use our small businesses, our local operators. Stop ordering offshore. Order locally. Um, that's the way we'll keep jobs here. I don't like this terminology, Kate, but is there really Team Australia out there? Uh, look, National Cabinet bringing together the Premiers, the Chief Ministers and the Prime Minister, great. Should have brought the Leader of the Opposition in as well if it was me. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that's happened that I really think that uh, Scott Morrison and the the coalition have got to look at is we we saw Anthony Albanese, we saw Albo come out and say, look, we need an energy policy. We all know we need an energy policy. And they said, we'll sit down and we will get rid of some of the bits that we've had in the past that have been, you know, sticking points. We won't get rid of, you know, zero emissions by 2050, but then that's in the Paris agreement anyway, so we've already agreed to that. Um, I think one of the things that the coalition should do, Scott Morrison should do, is say, yep, Team Australia is here and things like energy policies are fundamental, so let's sit down together and let's do this. That would be such a positive. Kate, I'm with you on that. That's terrific to hear that Albanese and the team are doing that. It's terrific news. The property players, the leases, the rent, are they coming to play? Are they coming to support in the Team Australia or is it just going to be hard news? Look, we're having some real problems in this area. As we know, for most small businesses, the biggest costs are wages. Well, JobKeeper's helped with that. You know, your payments to your bank, the banks have pushed those out, ATOs pushed them out, and then there's rent. Now, the National Cabinet came out with a mandatory commercial tenancy code, but it's a code. And right at the moment, the small business commissioners in each state and my office federally have got 1,400 cases of landlords that really haven't come to the party. And the code is quite clear. What's supposed to happen is that they're supposed to reduce the um, the rent an equivalent amount to what the business, you know, the reduction in the business, you know, in what the business has turned over. At least half of that should be a rent reduction and half of that can be can be a deferral. The problem is it's not happening. And the problem is, is that um, for a lot of landlords, they're asking for a whole lot of documentation. They're asking for, you know, for business plans. They're asking for how much your firstborn's worth, you know, all sorts of stupid stuff. Yeah. Um, in Team Australia, as you said earlier, yeah. we've all got to suffer. Yes, the landlords will suffer a bit because they won't get the rent they used to get. But for small businesses, you haven't got any income or you haven't got much income. It's jolly hard to pay rent. So what do I do? Do I not pay the rent? And what you do is you tell them that there is a mandatory code, that they would be aware of that code, and they must sit down and negotiate with you. And uh, the code is pretty clear. It's on our website. Um, And just one thing I'd like to remind people on our website, there's a part of our website called My Business Health. And what that's got is bits about how you look after yourself, but also what's available from various states and territory governments um, and federal government, and a bit about the mandatory code. So what's in it, what to do. And are we taking care of ourselves? We're not taking care of ourselves as much as, well, we're not taking care of ourselves. Unfortunately, we people in business, especially small business, think that we're superman and superwoman, and somehow we can deal with this level of stress 
insecurity, lack of knowledge of what next year is going to have, and for this not to impact upon our health. The fact is we're not Superman and Superwoman, so we've got to focus on looking after ourselves, looking after our own mental health. There's some good things that you can have a look at on our website, but one of the good things is Beyond Blue has a 24-7 COVID helpline with mental health professionals at the other end that if you're struggling, give them a ring. You know, um, you don't have to go into an office. You can do it 24-7. You know, the fact is you won't be in a position to get your business through this or out the other end if you crash and burn, if your health suffers. So we've all got to look after ourselves and our family and our staff. But if you don't look after yourself, nothing is going to work. So the ticking time bombs are out there, Kate? They certainly are. So the repercussions then go into the next part where that, that owner of the business goes home sees his or her family, addresses the family and says, unfortunately, we've gone to the wall, we're broke. We're going to be in debt for X number of years. And then we go to the next part, maybe that person jumps in the car, goes for a drive and doesn't come home. That's when I said before about mental health, those mental health stats were before COVID. Remember, these are people, these are business people who three months ago, four months ago, had viable businesses. Things were tracking along well. Yeah. You know, they had plans for the, you know, probably for the school holidays. Yeah. They had a business that was that was good. They had good employees and so on. Um, nobody could plan for something like this. And it happened literally overnight, you know, to a whole range of those businesses that I talked about before. So, you know, in terms of the stress level of this, it's really dramatic. And the point you made before about deciding, well, look, you know, I'm out of here, we're going to go broke. I think it's really important, the message to small businesses, even middle-sized businesses, is please go and talk to to your accountant or your financial advisor now and really have a look to see if your business is viable going forward, you know, post JobKeeper, you know, when you are having to pay rent again and and uh, and your bank again and pay back the money you owe the ATO and pay your staff properly, you know, all of those sorts of things. Because if, the longer you leave these things, the more debt accumulates and the more chance there is of, heaven forbid, you lose your house. Okay, Kay, but let me throw it the other way. What if, what if I said go down the street and talk to your local politician and ask them when the states get together and ask why isn't small business being seriously represented there and asking when are we going to open up these borders? Now, yeah. when, when, when are we going to get some clarity in the sense of at what level is it acceptable on you know uh, yeah. the illness stats, et cetera, that we're prepared to open up the states? Because at the moment, this whole country is living in the land of ambiguity. So we've got no clarity in the sense of leadership coming out saying yeah. on this particular number or something we could work towards, Kate, that's what I was just thinking yeah. out there. Yeah. Well, if I can know that number, we can all get to that point. Great. Victoria is going to open. Queensland are going to open. WA are going to open. I, I hear what you're saying, but I, we're all going to run a business. Going, I hope we can be paid the bills because I've got the accountant breathing down my neck. The banks are going to come at me when they're ready to in some, the next period yeah. of time. So in the interim, I've got these pollies who's supposed to be representing me and understanding me, what sort of what sort of level of, um, from your perspective, Kate, what level of voice are we getting in that in that discussion? Look, I think it's 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 better than it's been. At least there's some discussion about there's some round tables happening. But I absolutely agree that look, we can't keep saying oh they should do something. I think we've got to say we should we yeah. you know personally should do something. You know, get in touch with your local chamber of commerce, join your local if you, your local chamber if you can afford it. At this stage, many couldn't. 
but come to my office, go to your local pollies and explain to them what's happening to your business. You know, the real life stories, in my experience, are the things that really matter. You know, you get all sorts of lovely stats and other things. You know, there was some fascinating stats out of the ABS, yeah. you know, that suggested that 66% of businesses um, in Australia had, had a significant reduction in turnover. Um, and I think the, the figure was 30% of those, the reduction was more than 50%. Yeah. You know, those are huge changes. So the message is stats are lovely, but personal stories are fundamental in this space. And I tell you what, having spoken to lots of businesses in Cairns and the Gold Coast and Margaret River and the Northern Territory that really, really, really rely on tourism yep. and the flow-ons from tourism, yep. you know, they you're right, they need a date. They need to say, okay, you know, this is when it's going to happen. And we've got to be clar- we have clarity around what happens if we have outbreaks yep. like Victoria, because Correct. we're going to have them until we have a, a va- vaccine. We're going to have outbreaks. Our challenge is um, if you have an outbreak, you contain it, you test, you 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 know, you, you might have to close down the, the small area, but we're not going to go and blow tourism up again. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to get in the way of businesses getting back on track. But we need plans and clear, transparent plans because this isn't going away, you know. No. We're not going to have a vaccine potentially till the end of next year. I'd love to think it's the beginning of next year, but it might not be. And, you know, we've got to, we've got to live with this. And those businesses, yeah, they're just not going to survive. The other thing I'm, I'm looking at is I remember the, the GFC. Sad to say, but most people over 55, I'd never saw come back. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's that's the real story too, isn't it? That is the real story. You know, the thing about 28, 29 years of consecutive growth, all that sort of stuff, meant that a very, very large percentage of people in Australia, both employees and employers, had never actually seen a real downturn. They hadn't seen the 91, 92. Seen a bit of GFC maybe, but even that, lots of people hadn't seen, you know, that, that from a personal perspective. So they didn't get pay reductions. They didn't get, you know, scenarios where a lot of big companies have had to reduce uh, pay rates. They didn't get mass stand downs, hadn't ever seen it before, you know, thought that wages were things that increased every year. And we whinged a lot if we only increased by CPI because, you know, you should have wage increases that are more than CPI every year. Well, you know, I tell you what, that's not happening (laughs) for, for a little while. All of that said, and to try to be positive for a moment, I've been blown away by small businesses' capacity to pivot. Yeah. Small businesses doing things way outside what they did before to keep the show on the road, to keep their businesses ticking along. Um, you know, all of the gyms that are that have got, you know, online gym sessions, this gym owner, a young woman who just who'd opened her gym last October. Uh, poor thing, providing um, online gym sessions, not just for her normal clientele, but for kids when the kids were at home, you know, for older people. She's really grown her her business um, and her new, as, as gyms reopen, she'll certainly go back to the spin classes and all the rest of it, but she's going to keep her online part of her operation. So the message 
out of all of this has been we have to digitise. We, you know, in small business, in all businesses, we have to have digitised businesses. We have to utilise social media marketing, the online capacity to deliver services, to sell services. On the positive note, a lot of businesses who are umming and ahhing about this had to jump. And uh, that's a really good thing. And it will really help them going forward. So it's, it's, played, it's played a number of people's hands, hasn't it? Absolutely. We were all a bit fat and happy in Australia, you know. We had that year after year growth. We thought flat wages when it was when you only got CPI increases. Unemployment rates were quite low, yeah. all those things. Um, and it meant that change... We thought, oh, you know, well, possibly we don't have to do that. We don't, have to, you know, we're busy. We won't, we won't get around to it. Now you've had to get around to it, and we've seen lots of businesses really pivot, yeah. really do things that possibly or they should have been doing already, but they're certainly doing them now, and um, show that they can be incredibly flexible. And that's yeah. why small business matters because it can be nimble and flexible yeah. and change quickly in comparison to big businesses. You know, they can produce the face masks. They can produce bits of ventilators with 3D printers. You know, all sorts of fantastic stuff has come out of small businesses, small to medium businesses. Kate, I was in a meeting oh, a number of years back after the GFC and someone made a remark, did you notice when those who were made redundant, what they did thereafter? And a point that I thought worth telling was females were the ones who went out and set up their businesses. I don't know whether that's true or not. True. Is it's, that true? It's true. Now, why is Absolutely. that the case? Um, what we find is women will say, okay, you know, I've been made redundant. We need income. You know, I've got a young family. What am I going to do? I'm going to work from home. What can I do? What yep. am I good at? I'll do this. I'll do some research and I'm going to get on with it. Yep. So just do it. So they start small businesses, usually owner-operated, usually them, maybe them and their sister or somebody else who was made redundant at the same time and they start um, a business based upon something that they think there's a, a gap in the market or something that they're passionate about and they start building a business from home. Where we've got a bit of work to do is they're really good at that. They rare, they don't go broke nearly as often as men do. So they grow their business, they employ a few people, but we need to do more work in helping, in encouraging those businesses to take the next leap in that because they really, really don't like borrowing using the family home as collateral. They, mm. they struggle with that. And that's not just Australia. I was speaking at a conference last year and an American who was in a similar role to me burst out laughing in the audience, said that's exactly the speech I gave last week to small business women, small business owners in the US, that, you know, we've got to find a way to help small business women invest in their business to take it from small to medium. But I guess with the advent of new technology and digital, as you mentioned earlier, the cost to play now has come down. Absolutely. You know, when, when I bought my first business back in the early 80s, Advertising was TV, which was really expensive, radio that was pretty expensive, or the boy on the bike with the, you know, with the leaflet. That's you right. You know, that was advertising. I don't feel that old, but gee whiz, that sounds really old, doesn't it? Um, now, of course, social media, marketing, direct, being able to talk to my pharmacy customers direct through many avenues at the moment, whether it's Facebook, whether it's direct email um, interface, you know, all sorts of things. And of course, 
Um, even things like radio advertising and so on has become lots more affordable. So there's so many really good things available and a lot of it's either free or pretty cheap. You know, Google have some great um, courses for small businesses yep. to help them um, utilise Google ads more efficiently. Even people like um, Tourism Australia have some great short courses on how to put together good YouTube videos to, to best talk about your business to potential tourists. Now, you have tourists first, that's a problem, but yep. there's lots and lots of great um, tools around that are affordable to, you know, even quite small businesses and affordable because some of them are even free. And Zero software company, yes. yep. um, it's a piece of research they did recently that for businesses that are using platforms, you know, um, accounting platforms like Zero and there's MyOB and others, yep. and apps that help them with rostering, stock control, all of those things, they're 30% more likely to be growing. They're, you know, 35% more likely to be employing because they keep their costs down in the non-course, you know, business and uh, and it's more efficient. So there's some exciting stuff here and COVID has really forced a lot of people to say, well, you know, it's now or never, we're really going to have to have, give this a shot. Well, another one which is interesting, Kate, is I got off the phone yesterday for a well-known management consultancy organisation and the big demand is customer experience. Absolutely. Who delivers that better? Big end um, of town or the uh, small end of town? Um, small end of town by a country mile because when people came into my pharmacy, I could say, hi, Mrs. Jones, how's your husband? You know, understand he's not, he wasn't very well. How's those, you know, whatever. Yeah. How's that, you know, that that child of yours that you're telling me was driving you crazy? That was why people came back to my pharmacy. And I'll tell you a really quick story. Husk Bakery in Canberra. Um, this guy has worked, you know, as a pastry chef for a long time, worked in one of the best bakeries in Canberra bought his own in October and Canberra then, of course, had bushfires, which were in Canberra, well, though we didn't burn, was smoke haze, you know, really choky smoke haze for a long time. So it wasn't very good for his business. What he did um, is he turned his delivery truck into a mobile shop. He put um, he, he put the Mr. Whippy type um, speakers on top of his van he went on to social media and told all these people that he'd be at this place at this time. He didn't play green sleeves, but I think he did play something like weird, like, you know, let your, your ears hang down or something. And he zipped around the, the, you know, the Canberra suburbs going out to various places selling his fantastic pies and sourdough and he's selling out. You know, and, and so you don't have to be an IT whizzy company no. to use smart social media to to do that customer service um, really, really well. So what he's doing is taking great sourdough and Danish pastries and pies out to, to where people live and doing really well. Kate, I'm going to ask you a couple of difficult ones for you now. You're on a roll. But I'm going to ask you a couple of hard ones for you. Okay. Okay. Immigration is always a hot topic. Yep. All right. And you think about uh, GDP and because we get greater immigration, we all clip the ticket on that because if someone buys a home, someone gets a credit card, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. and hopefully that creates a new job. If you watch what's going on in the United States at the moment, they're going to shut down a lot of the visas and say, you know what, it's the Americans are going to come first 
Now, is there going to be debate around that in Australia? We're going to see a lot more around the nationalism in that sense because we don't want the unemployment queue to go up. Look, we really, we really don't. And remember that a lot of Australia's 28, 29 years of growth has come off the back of population increase. Yeah, agreed. Our productivity, baseline productivity, has been pretty flat for lots of years. So we have grown off the back of immigration. Some of that's refugees, but you know, generally immigration work visas and other things. I think we have to accept for a period of time now that we can't rely on that, even if we wanted to. Um, I think we should, we, we certainly shouldn't close down immigration because there's a whole lot of people, you know, particular skill sets that um, we need to, yep. to grow our economy. So we've got to make sure that we don't cut off our nose in this space. Yep. But I think Australians will expect immigration to be kept to those um, particular skills that we need. I mean, fairly obviously Australia has a global responsibility to take some refugees, um, and we do and we should, but we can't rely on population growth for for economic growth. We have to rely on productivity. You know, we have to get better at what we do. And, you know, to do that, we've got to increase the participation rates of women. We've got to increase the participation rates of older people in the workforce, 58% of university graduates last year were women. So, yeah, 58%. And that's in medicine, um, law, all those sort of areas. Um, So it's really essential that we utilise our very, very well-educated women in our workforce. And to do that, we've got to make childcare affordable in this country. And countries that have done that well, um, like Canada and to some extent Germany and others, who have accepted that women make rational decisions, if it costs them more in childcare than they're going to get paid, then they don't go back to work. I've got a number of people working, two people, not a number, two people working for me that work three days a week because I want them to work five days, but they've shown me that if they work those other two days, the childcare is line ball or more than what I'm going to pay them. And they're not, and you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. Families aren't stupid. So we've got to have a system that actually utilizes that 58% of women with university degrees. Kate, are small business people working from home? A large numbers, number of them are. Okay. So your thoughts on productivity there? I think that working from home is really good for some people um, and really bad for other people. I think one of the things we've seen during COVID is some companies have said, oh, look, our productivity is fine. It's fantastic. I think they might be gilding the lily just a little myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for some people and in, and in some companies, working from home is good. For lots of small businesses that are just starting to grow their business, working from home is essential because of keeping costs down. But it's horses for courses. You know, there are issues surrounding domestic violence. Yep. There are issues surrounding whether home is exactly a fantastic place to be. When my office um, had to, um, when m- most of my staff had to work from home, you know, I had um, people who were working in group, who were at group homes, group houses, you know, they're young people out of uni. Yep. And so there's four people in a group house 
not exactly conducive to doing a full day's work, particularly as all four of them were attempting to do that, or three of them were and the other one had been stood down and was just creating problems for the other three. So I'm just saying, look, I don't believe we're going to go back to how we were. More people will work from home because we've seen you can do it, and that's going to be really important for rural and regional areas where people can actually do jobs that are used to be CPD based, but they can do them from outside CPDs. That's yeah. good. Um, and I think it's actually, we're going to actually see a new uh, group of small businesses that have been started up at home during this period. So a new lot of entrepreneurial women and men yep. um, start up new businesses during this time. And we've got to make sure we support them. Okay, if we can support them, terrific, and we can go from there. But let me ask you the other tough question. What's going to happen when JobKeeper comes to its end, and do you think that's going to be September, at the end of uh, September? Look, I think it will come to an end in September for a large number of of people, but I'm hopeful that when the Treasurer makes his speech on the 23rd of July, which is when the review of JobKeeper is happening, yep. that it's made really clear that industries that are still not really reopened and are still struggling, that JobKeeper or something equivalent will be um, will be extended. I think though there sec- needs to be a second part of that for businesses that might not be at still thirty percent down, but still might be ten or fifteen percent down. That there needs to be um, a phase out mechanism to help them stay afloat as they go through the supposed cliff, they've got to start paying their bank, they've got to start paying the ATO, they've got to start paying um, rent and and wages. And you know, some of the interesting ideas that have floated around is a hex-style loan scheme where small businesses can, can um, borrow on a hex-style system where they pay it back as their revenue gets up to a certain level. So a revenue-contingent loan-type system. Yeah. Um, because on the whole, small businesses don't want to up their debt. Their debt's probably too high already. So I think we've got to look outside the square and think about ways that we can help that cliff, massage that cliff, um, even for the businesses that are starting to do okay but aren't there yet. And, Kate, does that mean you're going to advocate for more tax reform? Oh, absolutely. We want to get rid of fringe benefit tax. We think it's a silly tax for small business. It just red tape, doesn't actually raise that much money and it stops small businesses using restaurants and childcare facilities and, you know, and gyms. We can't afford to put up your staff's wages. It's great to be able to give them benefits um, that at the moment would be subject to fringe benefit tax. So, you know, there's things like that we could do. We could make instant asset write-off something that is there forever, not just something we keep extending for another few months get rid of depreciation, except when it when you need to, you know, sometimes depreciation is a good thing. But we should say to businesses, if you want to invest in your business and buy some plant and equipment, do it, please. Do it, please, now, and you can write it off immediately. Yes, we've got instant asset write-off up to 150000 now. Yep. It's been extended to the end of the year. Yep. I'd like to think, well, you know, let's use this opportunity to get rid of red tape and dumb stuff. Yeah. Um, like fringe benefit tax, like certain sorts of depreciation. And we've still um, got payroll tax, haven't we? The old classic for yeah. a 
getting off my backside, taking a risk, putting my house on the line and going hiring someone and I'm going to get penalised for it. Yeah, um, payroll tax is a state-based tax and it's, a, well, let's be fair, it's a tax on employment. For the foreseeable future, we do not want to tax employment in this country, certainly not for SMEs, you know, the ones that are just hitting the threshold, you know, that if they employ that one or two more people, they're going to end up paying payroll tax because they're going to run over the threshold. Now, how dumb's that? Let's show, let's put, if we've got to keep payroll tax, let's put the threshold up significantly so that uh, we don't discourage SMEs from employing. Kate, in, in all your travels around the world, when you look at other models like this in regards to small to medium-sized businesses and the support they're getting and the voice at the table in terms of government debate, et cetera, which countries or which nations are, are really using the model to aspire to? Look, you know, the, if the US, for all of its down, you know, for all of this stuff you look at at the moment go, really? But anyway, um, um, do it pretty well. Um, you know, they've, they've, got, they've got something called SDA, which is, the, which is a small business development agency, which is huge, okay. which focuses on really important things like why wouldn't we right now say to government at all levels purchase from small to medium businesses in this country. Stop purchasing from multinationals, you know, unless you absolutely have to. In the US, they're really quite focused on that. Okay. Focused on ensuring procurement wherever possible is from entities that are employing locally. They've got um, they, they've got a range of requirements around um, procurement from, from small businesses i just give you a stat because I do stats a bit. Payment times is a really big problem. A lot of big businesses have pushed out payment times yeah. during COVID yes. and small businesses can't afford it. But, you know, we've got lots of multinationals, you know, that have got standard practice 90, 120 days um, to paying small business. Not okay. Barack Obama moved to pay um, small to medium businesses in 15 days, um, just a number of years ago, because he was president at the time, Harvard Business School did a review of what that had done three years later. And by moving to 15-day payment times, Harvard Business School said he had delivered 75,000 new jobs and $6 billion to pay packets of Americans. You pay quicker, money moves quicker, investment happens there are some of the things that some countries do well. Australia doesn't do well yet, um, but we need to. Kate, I'm getting told unemployment stats all the time. Am, yeah. I ever going to get, am I ever going to get presented to us as an Australian citizen who put these governments into power, the real numbers? What I, is, that, what well, is we, unemployment we really, these days? Yeah. Look, we, we need to because the ABS approach to unemployment was any – you had to have – do not be on the list. All you had to do is work one hour a week, one hour in the week that it was. And that's employment, you know, is it? Well, apparently you're employed if you'd worked one hour and you weren't unemployed. So, I mean, nobody would think that passed a pub test. That's right. So, so now we've got these sort of unemployment and then underemployment stats, mm. which, you know, the un underemployment stats are really big. The unemployment rates, of course, are getting bigger right at the moment. Yeah. But in reality, one hour a week's not employment. So we need to to get some solid views on on what unemployment really looks like. 
and it's really a mixture of unemployment and serious underemployment. That's people who want to work more hours. You know, people not, I mean, lots of people want to work part-time or want to work casually and want to work 10 hours a week or whatever. Good, that's fantastic. But for people who are working five hours a week but really want to work 40 hours a week or 35 hours a week, in my view, they're un, they're unemployed. Then they're employed a bit, but you know they they're looking for work. Maybe that's the point. Uh, who? How many people in Australia do we have looking for work? I don't know. What are the numbers? Do you do you have, do you have an we idea? We don't know. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. Well, you could possibly add the underemployment with the unemployment rates, and then you'd have a figure that was a was significantly higher than what we've got, which would be pushing up around maybe 13, 14%. That's sort of right. And should we should we be delaying the budget numbers because it doesn't suit us to do it this time around at the, nor- the normal date? As Again, look, as, a, as, yeah, a, as, as someone I, as a I, taxpayer, should I know what the, uh, the books look like? Um, look, I was treasurer. I brought down five budgets. And, yep. you know, I get that huge amounts of effort goes into budgets. And right at the moment, the game's changing by the day. Yeah, okay. Um, and it certainly was when the budget figures would have had to have been put together for a May budget. You know, they were doing things that I didn't ever think I'd see Treasury do. Um, and I certainly didn't ever think I'd see the ATO look for new and different ways of giving money back. You know, that's not not really what they do. So I get that it would have been really hard to put together a budget that was going to hold for anything more than a month um, back then. So I get putting it off. Mm. I think possibly, you know, it is important though to have financial updates a bit more often than, you know, we've got. But I also get that Treasury, there's only certain numbers of people who are expecting to do an awful lot of stuff right now. They're incredibly busy and maybe we need to keep focused on keeping the economy afloat, making, you know, coming up with a solid plan for July, you know, for when the Treasurer talks about the JobKeeper review on what, the next phase of recovery looks like. I think I want them to be doing that rather than number crunching, really. As a person who's been in politics and business, how are you seeing the play out where we're sitting as a country in the global markets and in particular in Southeast Asia? Um, Because that's going to affect our business people. Look, it is. Um, I think that we've done some good stuff. Free trade agreements are great. You know, they do get rid of tariffs. They are, you know, a smart way of operating. I think we've got to do more in the SME space. Our small to medium businesses in Australia aren't performing in the export space nearly as well as other OECD countries are. Now, some of that might be our island status, that it's a little harder to get product to market. But but for all of that, we've got to really focus on how we we help and support SMEs get product and service into our into our near neighbours in Southeast Asia. It was, it's great that we've got an Indonesian free trade agreement, but Indonesia's, you know, just up there, you know, it's not far away. It's got lots of people. Yeah. We we need to focus more on places like Indonesia. Um, Vietnam's great, Malaysia, of course. What and I think one thing we've learnt during this period is you don't put too many of your eggs in one basket. China's great and fantastic and all the rest of it, but you don't want to be reliant on China for your economy either now or in the future. It should be an important part 
but not a, a, not a part that we can't do without. And therefore, therein lies the challenge. But Indo- Indonesia, you know, is, is huge, 600 million something, you know, lots of people. There's lots of opportunities in our region to, to really grow. And we're going to rebuild that relationships with the UK. I guess now they've spun out of um, you know the, the, the arrangement with Europe. Yeah, look, absolutely. And uh, you know when they went into the EU, our winemakers, a whole range of people, our dairy, yeah. our agricultural produce has really suffered because the Brits were tied to the EU to their subsidised farmers. You know all that stuff that we yeah. don't do. Yeah. Um, so it will be great to get a lot of our produce, our wine, our you know, and, and let's be fair, goods and services you know, back into the UK. Um, that's, but that's just part of the puzzle at the moment. It's, it's not all of it. Uh, and I think we shouldn't ever underestimate the importance of our region. And that's, that includes the Pacific as yeah. well. It's, uh, it's interesting, you know, that there's lots of opportunities for Australian construction companies, yes. even health companies. You know, there's a Canberra-based company called Aspen Medical, you know they did win exporter of the the year last last year, but they're they're running a Fijian hospital at the moment. They're doing a lot of the Ebola work for the for the WHO. There's a range of of, of companies in Australia that can do all sorts of things if we focus and support them to uh, you know to have access to market. We're a resilient group, the Australians, but from your perspective, just standing back, where, where's our tempo at the moment? Are we upbeat? We're flat. We're concerned. We're, we're, you know, are we talking the right language? What are you seeing? I think we're a bit flat, you know, because we don't know where we don't know what's going to happen here. Um, that said, we were a bit flat before. I said we were a bit fat and happy before. You know, we were sort of we relied on growth, meaning we relied on population growth for a whole range of things. I hope that what this does is it really gives our entrepreneurs our passionate, enthusiastic people, the real oomph to say, okay, we've got to fix this. We've got to get Australian productivity firing because there's not a choice. Yeah, that's right. You know, we've got to get our products into, into Asia. We've got to get ahead of the curve in a range of things. Think about green steel. We make steel, but there's going to be a requirement for more environmentally friendly steel going forward. Yeah. We can't compete on run-of-the-mill steel because China's really cheap, not not in the global market. But let's think about things that are a little bit different. We've got lots of iron ore. We've got lots of all sorts of things. Um, But we've got to look at where our market is. It's not in the the cheap end. It's at the advanced manufacturing end. Um, And we are so lucky to have the resources we do. We've got Lots of wind and lots of sun and lots of coal and lots of gas and lots of minerals, all sorts of things that places like, you know, South Korea or Japan would give their back teeth for. So let's get off our our asses, our bottoms, and let's actually do some advanced manufacturing in Australia. Maybe this has been a wake-up call for us. Do you think the, the politicians and even key business people, are we talking it up enough? No, but we've got to start now because, you know, look, as, as you said, we... Because it is the land of opportunity, not, if you think the right way. 
it, there's a huge amount of opportunity um, if we think the right way because I mean, it's not only the Australian economy that's been affected by COVID. The whole world has, and most yeah. of the world affected lots worse than us. We've still got a AAA credit rating, you know, yeah. one of the very few countries in the world that does. And we've got all those resources that I was talking about before. Yeah. We've got a whole lot of smart people. That's right. We've got all the bits that you need. Our downside is we're an island, and, but that's a pretty that's the reason we don't have the same the problems that lots of places have with COVID, I think. But you know, I hope that what this does is makes Australia really realise just how lucky we are. But luck doesn't just happen when you sit around waiting for it. Now, we've got to use this opportunity where our economy is in a better place than just about anybody else's, even though it's in a pretty rotten place, but it's better than most places. Um, we can use this opportunity as a moment, as as a time to, uh, to get that advanced manufacturing approach happening, getting our education system, our skills systems working for the jobs of now and in the future, you know, getting um, our young people into apprenticeships while they're at school. Don't wait. You know, let's, you know, they're, they're, we're going to have an unemployment problem. So why don't we let people start their apprenticeships in year nine yep. for those that want to? There's a bit of that, but you know, let's be, let's think outside the square. Let's say, look, we don't want these young people to be unemployed. We can get them through their apprenticeship before year 12. Let's do it. So if we look at the global competition, Kate, and if they, yep. if they mess around, have their infighting, and we get our act together, surely this is the time to steal the, steal the ground, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you look at America and I said before you go, dear, you've got, you know, the issues that are existing in the in the EU, the UK, a range of places that we can that you'd say we're in our space. Um, we are in a really, really good good place to do some really clever things as long as we do what all businesses should do and think about Australia as a business, look at where the opportunity is, look at your point of difference, look at what we need to do, you know, to get environmentally friendly steel. I'm just using it as an yeah. example. Yep. Up and running, happening. Let's um, do that as the Grattan Institute suggested. Let's think about the areas in coal mining areas, um, which, you know, over time may sh will shed jobs. Let's get steel manufacturing, green steel manufacturing. Let's get a hydrogen industry yep. in this in, in this country. None of these things are outside our capacity. We can do these things. So when someone comes up and sees you and asks for some advice and says, Kate, I've been thinking long and hard about opening up my business. Mm -hmm. Are you gonna you're gonna say go for it? You're gonna say hesitate? And if you, if you say go for it, what do I need to think about, Kate? What I'm gonna say is how passionate are you? If you want to set up a business because you think I'd like to get my work-life balance better, can I say don't do it yes. because it won't work? Uh, it'll get worse, I can promise. So don't do it that. So work-life balance is not a good reason. People tell me that, by the way. They say, oh, I just want to get my work-life balance better. Oh, just because I want to be my own boss. Bad idea. No, get rid of all those. But if you're passionate about something, you've got a bit of a vision for what you want to do, something that you believe you can do better than others or there's a gap in a market, go for it. Do your homework. I try to say to people, go go and work in a similar business if you can. Go and get some actual knowledge 
um, about, you know, similar type operations if you can, um, because never what you think it's going to be, I have to say. But if, if that's not possible, do your homework, make sure you got a good business plan, make sure you got a good financial advisor. Remember, it's going to take longer than you expect and cost more than you expect and take more hours than you expect. But gee whiz, it's fun. Kate, well, if, I think it's fun. If we were going to do the old uh, question, dial into the Prime Minister this afternoon while he has his meetings with everybody and you've got corporates on one side, you've got the other politicians on the other side, maybe even the opposition turn up. Yep. And you've got 20 minutes. What's your three key points you're going to tell them? Um, what I'm going to tell them is we've got to think outside the square. We've got to make use of the things of our natural benefits in this country and let's not get into a you know a whole lot of woozy stuff let's look at what we've actually got like iron ore lots of wind lots of solar you know whatever what are we going to do to maximize the benefits of those attributes to this country what skill sets are we going to need to make that happen how are we going to deliver those skill sets quickly not after we've had a 10-year plan let's do it um, let's do it really quickly and let's focus on markets Okay. And Kate, if you were to look back at that young lady, some bloke might have been trying to ask her out for a date but could never get onto it because she's in that pastry pastry yeah. chef office all day long at 2 a.m. Yeah. What advice would you give her now looking back? Um, to, you know, to back yourself. I, suppose, I know it's always people say that a bit, but, you know, like most people, I suffer from the imposter syndrome like, like most people do, probably always have. Um, the message for me is that the thing I've learned often the hard way, is that there are five things, I think, you know, that, that you need. And if you've got them, it'll, you know, it, um, business will work, life will work. And that's um, enthusiasm, empathy, engagement, staying engaged with your industry, with, you know, your school, if that's what it is. Entrepreneurial spirit, like don't wait till you've got all the information because, by then, the, the ducks will have flown away. They won't be in a line anymore. They will have flown away and accept that uh, anything worthwhile doing is going to be something that you're going to make some enemies. If you're looking for something that everyone's going to love you your whole life, um, don't try anything big, you know, don't go down this path because, you know, you do make, if you're really focused on on doing things, then there will be people who, for whatever reason, Aren't gonna aren't gonna love you, so those are my. I know that this is sounding a bit glib, but those are sort of my five E's. You know, enthusiasm, empathy, engagement, entrepreneurial spirit, and in enemies. So if I'd known all that, that um, I, there would have been some decisions that I would have made that I didn't make that I should have made. There's a couple of businesses that I didn't buy that I should have. There was a particular job that. I didn't take that I should have because I didn't have all the information and I was, you know, all that sort of stuff. So if I, you know, if I had that ingrained in my brain then, now I would have gone into some different directions. But, you know, I hopefully um, I wouldn't have made some of the mistakes I made. Kate, I can't ask for any more than that. I really do appreciate you uh, sharing sharing everything with us today. It's been a terrific conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. And good luck with your business. Thank you very much. Well, you've been listening to No Limitations. 